This is our load shedding compatible audio visual. Um, I'm the audio, this is the visual. And uh, yeah, guys, well done and thank you. And I don't see too many kids. I think they're all in recovery, quite frankly. But uh, part of the thing was if uh, one of the leaders were to say, if I say wonderful, you say, uh, sorry, if I say wonder, you say, oh. you say oh. I say wonder, you say, oh. I say wonder, you say, oh. okay, come on, parents, the, the, like the kids were like a hundred times, like, I say wonder, you say, oh. there we go. Now, I can go, um, boys and girls, those of you who are here, I can go back to my real job, uh, which is also carrying messages, actually, but it's not the postman. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, we had some fun in that space. Um, but today, we're going to take just a few moments and go back to the story that we started looking at. I'm going to need some victor I mean, volunteers just now, um, that we started looking at on Thursday night. See, one of the best parts of my job is when we start talking, people talk to me about their lives, one of the things I'm listening for is when they're talking, I'm asking myself this question, how do they see themselves? How do they see, let there be wonder? No. <laughs> um, try again, Kirk. Um, how do they see themselves? How do they see the world... How do they see God? Those things are also like woven together. And so I want to quickly take some time this morning and ask the question, what if our whole way of seeing the world needs to change? What if our whole way of seeing the world needs to change? You see, sometimes listening to people, I realize that what they're seeing, what they're saying about themselves, what they're seeing about the world, what they're saying about the world, and invariably then, what they're seeing or saying about God needs a shift, needs a change. Now, the Apostle Paul was traveling, and he was in Asia Minor, and he came and then he moved across to Greece, and uh, he came to the city of Athens, and when he got there, he was waiting for his two sidekicks, Silas, a fellow apostle, and Timothy, his apprentice apostle, and uh, and. We read in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16 that he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Idols are things people worship that they've made up themselves. So if you take a block of wood and you carve it out, or you take some metal, or even an idol can just be an idea. But it represents for you what God is. And many times people don't just have one, they have several. And he goes through the city and he finds a whole bunch of idols. And as would he normally do, he always used to start with the people in the synagogue, and they had, they had the closest worldview, the closest answers to that set. But now he's so far from Jerusalem. And so he goes to the synagogue, reasons with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, who were people who had come to believe the Old Testament, as well as then he went to the marketplace day by day, uh, and he began to talk to those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, those were two different groups, um, but they were all one babble, began to debate with him. But then some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Now I want you to notice this. It's when someone starts speaking to you and it sounds just like complete nonsense, it's because your way of seeing the world, yourself, life, and God 
is probably different. So, you know, if you had to imagine you have a box or you have a ball, if the ball were to fit inside the box, which could contain more volume? Could they have the same amount of volume if the ball fits inside the box? No, the ball has to have less air inside. Why? Because its shape doesn't fit the box. If you want to fit a box inside the ball, the box has to have less air than the ball because their shape is different. You have to match the shape if you want to fit one into the other. We're often trying to squeeze something into a place. And when these guys are listening to Paul, they're thinking, he's just, like, this doesn't make sense. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the great news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they brought him to this meeting called the Areopagus, and they said, what is this new teaching you are presenting? You bring some weird ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. Because the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there spent their time, literally, is what the Bible says, doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Um, and so Paul stood up at this meeting, and he said, People of Athens, I see you are... Uh, in every way, you are very religious. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Then he says this, so you don't know the very thing you worship. You're ignorant of the very thing you worship. So this is what I want to proclaim to you. The God who made the world, we've been singing about that, everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth he doesn't live in temples made by human hands, and he certainly doesn't live in figurines that people make. Like, that's not God. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And so from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their territories, God did this, God did this, God did this, so that they would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him. God did this so they would seek him. Perhaps reach out for him. Perhaps find him. Though he's not far from every single one of us. For in him we live we move, we have our being. In other words, we exist because of him. As some of your own poets, and he quotes a poet from uh, their culture, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are like God's children, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. God has in the past overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day by which he will judge the world. Remember, he's good. And if he's good, he's going to deal with that which is not good. He set a day by which he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of the people sneered. Others said, we'd really like to hear you again. And uh, at that point, Paul left the council. You can carry on reading the chapter. But... Paul is bringing them the best news ever, and they think he's nuts. They think he's crazy, they think he's loopy, and they sneer. Because it doesn't fit the way they see the world. What if the whole way 
we see the world needs to change. Now, we're going to meet three groups of people. They were the Epicureans. They were essentially people who believed that if there was a God, and they had to believe that in order not to be atheists, um, because being an atheist back then was very bad. It wasn't really freedom of religion. So they were functionally atheist. But God had, if there was a God, he had created the world, and then he'd left it completely alone, and he was just like first cause, and then everything after that was utterly and completely random. It was an accident. Then there were the Stoics who believed literally that God was in everything. And literally, so anything that moved was moved by God. So everything that happened was the, di the direct agent was God himself. But God sort of like became fate and so on. And then there were all these people who believed in this pantheon. This, in other words, many, many, many gods. And so we know the Greco-Romans, they used to have you know, a god of love and a god of war and a god of the sky and a god of the sea and a god of this and a god of that and a god of wine and a god of etc. And I think some of those overlapped. And then there were all these fights inside the gods. So I'm going to need some help. Because um, what we're going to do is take a look at these different groups quickly. The first is the polytheists. I don't know if you could see that. Essentially, and, and in the middle is their main thing. Now, they didn't think, you know, they answer all the questions, but they have one main thing in the middle. You'll see the main thing moves. So the main thing they believed is there were many gods. So there was Zeus, and there was Jupiter, and there was Pluto, and there was this, and there was that. And these gods were not different to us. They were bigger, they were stronger, they were like superhuman, but they were not good. They were not better. They were just like humans on steroids. In other words, if they were bad, they were super bad. And the world, in this worldview, was like a board game or a battlefield. The gods were always squabbling amongst themselves, and, and we were just the pawns in their game as they moved the pieces around to try and win against each other. And life was a quest in which you tried to control these powers and stop them from getting hold of you. And so you were always trying to find out who's to blame. Who, who cursed me? Who did this? And whether it was people, whether it was the ancestors, whether it was the gods or whatever, you're always trying. That's why in the story, there was a plague a few hundred years before, and they thought, ah, we don't know one of the gods. Because we have offered to all of them. We have tried to sort all of them out. And none of it is working. So there must be a God we don't yet know. And so let's build an altar to the unknown God. And so you're just like a piece in the game. Now, there's still people who think of life in this way. But let's jump on. The Epicureans. For them, like, God wasn't the middle. Life was the reality that you faced. Life, you were alive, and that's what you had to live with. You, 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 you were there. You couldn't dispute that. But life had no meaning because it wasn't accident. It happened randomly. In fact, Epicureans were the first people to talk about atoms, not in the way that we do, but they, they believed that there were these microscopic things that could just move around, and everything was, 
a result of these random accidents moving around. Sounds a little like some of the scientific theories we have around today. Now, you have no reason to live other than make the most of it. So if making the most of your meaninglessness is just find something lacquer. And so they lived for pleasure. Um, but they realized very quickly that if you totally give yourself to pleasure, like food, you could die. You could overeat and die. So you had to give yourself to as much pleasure as you possibly could without hurting yourself. They weren't too worried about other people. Um, but your purpose was to find as much pleasure as possible. The world was an accident, and God is not available, he's not knowable, and he's certainly not interested. The interesting thing is, is when you look at the economic profile of this group of people, they tended to be more wealthy. And then we go to this group called the Stoics. There was a philosopher called Zeno, around about the same time as these guys, they all came out of a guy called Plato. And the Stoics believed that the world is predetermined. So if the one group believed the world is chaos, that's the many gods, it's a competition, it's, a, it's conflict. The other group believed the world is an accident or random. This group believed the world is like a giant machine. It's a clock that never goes wrong. And literally everything that happens has been decided beforehand. And so fate is this big idea that they had. It wasn't really God. It wasn't really God in control. Now, some people have taken this into Christian theology as much as they've taken other forms of pleasure or fear or blame into Christian theology, and it stops being Christian theology. But what we have is fate and not God decides everything. So even when you think you're making a choice, well, actually, that's an illusion. Your choice was actually predetermined, and it isn't real. So, I mean, you must learn to accept your faith. Life must be endured. And they, they, they spoke about virtue, like good emotions and good actions. Because bad emotions, weirdly enough, because you couldn't affect anything, just tended to make you feel worse inside your fate. Does that make sense? So you mustn't give in to your emotions because you've just got to learn to accept everything that comes at you as something that fate gives you. And their favorite thing would be, I believe everything happens for a reason. Don't know if you hear that around. But it's actually not good Christian theology. Of course everything happens for a reason. Some of it's very bad reasons. Whereas the problem with this is everything happens for a reason. It must be some powerful, it's not even rational force or intelligent force. It's just this, they used to have this picture of blind, you know, blind justice, but also blind faith. Faith couldn't see, it just was, and it rolled out. And so into this place, Paul wants to talk about creation. He wants to talk about the world. He wants to talk about them. He wants to talk about God. And they've got all these boxes, and it just doesn't fit. Now, I need some volunteers. Four. I'll start picking on one. Greg, there you come. Ah, polythus got torn in half. There we go. 
Now, here's the clever part of this thing. I want us to look at these before we look at this one um, and ask the question, what in their worldview was actually correct? Because it's never all rubbish. What in their worldview had a hint of truth or an aspect of truth that led them down that pathway? So, does anyone want to start with the polytheists, the many gods? What is there a hint of truth there? Uh, I wouldn't quite go there. This is a tricky part of answering these questions. I'm not going to explain the Trinity right now, but I promise you there's one God, although there are three persons. You are dead right. But polytheist means there's different gods who compete, whereas in Christian theology, they definitely don't compete. But, but a truth that you can actually live by. Exactly. There's a spiritual realm. There's a realm that is not confined. You can't explain all of reality and everything in our human condition and the way the world works or doesn't without understanding that the world is not just matter. That woven into this is another realm called the spiritual realm. And the polytheists, although they thought that that was many gods who were all in competition, they rightly understood that there is a spiritual realm that goes beyond this physical life. Okay. The Epicureans. Life is a random accident. Wow, this is a hard one. Anyone think you can dig out some truth in that lot? Is, let, me, let me help you. Is joy a bad thing? Now, that's in that verse, actually. I mean, it's, it's, it's in 1 Corinthians. Sorry, but well done. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. I mean, the Epicureans used to say, you know, uh, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and then, you know, but who cares kind of thing. And they just, they, they closed system life. But the thing is that they came to understand that you need to find some meaning. The problem was that they tried to invent meaning. Now, any of you who've watched propaganda and fake news know that inventing meaning is as useful as inventing truth. You can't invent truth. You find it. You discover it. But truth is bigger than something you invent. Invented truth is fake news. It is. If you have to invent truth, it's a lie. If you have to invent meaning, it will let you down. You've been made with meaning and purpose. And they were trying so hard to find what that purpose was. They thought it was joy, but they forget that joy and pleasure are actually byproducts of finding a great thing. Joy is a terrible master. It's a wonderful fruit. Joy is a terrible master. If you live for joy, you will be deeply depressed and disappointed. If you live for the Lord, you will find he gives you joy as a byproduct. Okay, let's look at the Stoics. Lift it high, Matthew. Any truth in the world is predetermined. Predestination. Okay, now we're in Romans 8. Okay. Jude. You do have a destiny. You do have a calling. Yes, Jill? 
God has a plan. God has a purpose. I mean, this is amazing. Matthew. Um, that God can see the future. So overall, he knows what we are going to do. So there is some kind of. of that is, okay, just want to finish? <laughs> there is some hint of truth in that. Like, of course, he's the alpha, the omega, he sees the beginning and the end. But Paul comes and he knows that. Now, the other things, it's not just like the future. Of course, he knows the future, he's been there. Um, but it's not just the future. There's a whole lot of things that even in our lives are predetermined. Who of you chose your birth date? Who of you chose your family? Who of you chose to be born in, you know, the, the 2000s? Me. No. <laughs> I wish. Like, like we, we just, there is so much about our lives that is a given. Like, and Paul's very clear. He, he actually, in all his discussions with them, he leans into, like he's a good missionary, he leans into their views, and he talks about the unknown God, says, I want to talk to you about it. Yes, there is a God. He is real. The Epicureans and Stoics are wrong. There is a personal God, and you don't know him, and I want to introduce him to you through Jesus and he talks to the Epicureans and he says, there is something that will give you pleasure. And there is something that will give you joy. But it's going to start with something that you're not thinking of, which is repent. And he talks to the Stoics and he says, yes, there's a whole lot of things in your life that you didn't choose. But there is a huge choice that you must make. Must make. And that choice is whether you will believe in the one that God has sent. And this one has Paul says, I've seen him, and others have seen him. He's literally lived as a man and been raised from the dead. Now, that's another whole sermon you'd be grateful to know. But here's the question. What happens if the way you see the world needs to change? God in the center. And Paul says he's this majestic creator. He's made everything. And yet he died for us. He's our loving Savior. And so the world that we're in is literally made by him for us. And the way we are to see ourselves is that we are loved. And we are invited to seek him and know him. And your life is a precious gift. It's not random. And neither is it predetermined in the sense that you have no meaningful choice. It's not a game. He's not cruel. He's unbelievably good. And your life is an opportunity to know him. Your life. Thank you, guys. You can just lay them down here. Well done. Let's give them a round of applause. Your life. Your life. Is an opportunity to know this God who is so great. And so good. And sent his son. Why? Because the story goes further and it explains that that good creation faced a terrible fall. But the God who loves us did not give up on us. And he was not going to let sin have the final say. That's why Jesus came. 
literally to deal with the thing that would destroy us. 1 John 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us a new way to see the world. A new way to see ourselves. A new way to understand our lives. Because you help us see who you are. And when we see you, everything changes. When we know what you are like, and what you have chosen and decided, everything, everything can find its place and find its purpose. Lord, we thank you that you are wonderful, good, faithful, and true.